0: Thank you, Aaron and the rest of the music team for leading us in those songs and helping us to center our minds and our hearts on the Lord as we come to His word. And it's a blessing to be with you all tonight in our quickly disintegrating or evaporating summer. It's going quickly. I'm sure you all feel that too. I can't imagine it's already near the end of July, but uh, it's just good to be good to be with you all in fellowship and, around the word and singing the Lord's praises. So would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts for God's word? Father, as we have just proclaimed through song, we often find our hearts not as they should be. In light of that, we thank you for your grace, the grace that's been poured out in your son. Father, give our hearts a tenderness to your word. Use your word tonight to stir our affections, our desires for you, for obedience, to live in a way that pleases you in light of what you've done for us in your son. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, in a recent conversation I was having with an unbeliever, I was asked, in light of the recent judicial decisions that have taken place in our nation. What a, a good Christian. What a good Christian is to think regarding those things. How is a, a good Christian? I emphasize that because that's what was emphasized to me. What is a good Christian supposed to think? And In that discussion and in recent discussions with this individual, it has become evident that he has no category in his mind in his thinking to understand how or why someone would make decisions that are moral or ethical based on a relationship with God. My uh, religion, as he likes to call it, is nothing more than a set of rules that I live by. As he sees it, he and I are basically the same. He has a developed sense of morality. He's fairly proud of that sense of morality he's developed, and and I have developed a mind, and that's basically how he sees us. as two individuals, basically the same, living out what we best can determine is a moral lifestyle, good citizens. He, I think, concedes that, oh, if we talk long enough, mine may have more sophisticated packaging or more terminology, but really, we're both men trying to decide what's right, what's wrong, how we're to live, and ultimately using our own judgment to determine what is best. Perhaps you've shared that experience in your interaction with unbelievers, maybe coworkers, or family members, they, they understand your faith, your Christianity as nothing more than a strict moral code, a, a buttoned up life. And certainly it is a buttoned up life, but it's so much more than that, right? And we can allow those misunderstandings or excuse the, the misunderstandings of those who are outside the faith as ignorance. But as we look toward home, as we look toward our own hearts, our own minds, what, what about us? How do we think about why we do what we do as Christians, as professing believers? Why do you live in the manner that you live? Why do you teach your kids? Why do you instruct your children the way you do? Why do you serve here at Mission Road Bible Church? Why do you serve others? The question before us tonight as we come to God's word is, do we know what God desires from us? Do we know what God desires from us? Those who have been called to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ must be men and women who know the heart of God. He has revealed it to us. We need to know it. And what he's revealed is that God desires the devotion of his people and not mere external conformity. God desires the devotion of his people, and this has been the case from the very beginning. Theologian uh, Walt Kaiser says that formal correctness And ceremonial exactness have never been a substitute for true repentance and a true heart relationship with God. Read that again. Formal correctness and ceremonial exactness have never been a substitute for true repentance and a heart relationship with God. In Deuteronomy, as we studied not all that long ago, we had the people of Israel standing on the plains of Moab preparing to enter their promised land. And Moses set before them the paradigm of devotion that was to govern their relationship with the Lord. The people there in, in verses that are familiar to us were commanded to love the Lord their God. Often we look at the Old Testament we think of law, a lot of legal restrictions, ceremonial restrictions, what you can wear, the colors of the thread and matching this and that and don't boil a... Baby goat and its mother's milk, which is in there. That's there. We think of those things. We ask, what, what is that? But all those things came after he said to the people to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with your whole being. They were told that their ability to reap the covenant promises that awaited them was contingent upon their devotion to him. They were to teach this wholehearted devotion to their families, That's what we have in the the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Moses even set forth by the Lord's grace in Deuteronomy 17 the parameters for how a future king was to govern the people. This king was to have a copy of the law of God for himself and read it all his life so that he would fear the Lord. So that he would love the Lord. So that he would follow the Lord with devotion and not turn aside from his commandments. Now fast forward in the canon of scripture from Deuteronomy, from when those those charges were given to the people of Israel to 1 Samuel, and you can turn there. That's where we're going to be tonight for our time together. 1 Samuel. Just to give us a running start and some background material, the prophet Samuel has provided a period of righteous judgment over the people of Israel. But as he got old, the people demanded a king. So the Lord graciously grants their request and he appoints Saul, the son of Kish, to be their first king. And so the monarchy for God's people is established. And in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel addresses the people and their new king and he charges them in the same manner that Moses had charged their forefathers. I want you to listen to the similarities, okay, as I read from 1 Samuel 12. Samuel tells the people, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. You must not turn aside. For then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. The king from the beginning of the monarchy was to be a leader who led the people in devotion to God, in devotion to the Lord. He was to be a devoted king, an obedient king, an obedient servant of the Lord, leading the Lord's people. But as the narrative concerning Saul's life unfolds for us in the pages of Scripture, he is shown to be a man who does not have a heart for the Lord. 1 Samuel 13 we see Saul's potential dynasty revoked. It's pulled away. Saul is told there that the Lord has sought out a man for himself, a man after his own heart. And there, as we move into 1 Samuel 15, which will be our text for tonight, in the big picture, where we are, 1 Samuel 15 prepares the way, it paves the way for David to come on the scene. So in the overall narrative, the overall grand scheme of 1 Samuel and on into 2 Samuel, First Samuel 15 is gonna pave the way for 1 Samuel 16, which is where David enters the scene. And the writer is moving this story of Israel and Israel's kings toward the introduction of David. And Saul is shown in the big picture to be a foil, a foil to David. David will be a king who loves the Lord and leads his people in obedience, and Saul is the antithesis of this. First Samuel 15 shows us why Saul was rejected as king. And what we want to look at very carefully tonight is that Saul was rejected as king because he was not devoted to the Lord. Saul was rejected as king because he had a wayward heart. The story before us in 1 Samuel 15 shows us what the Lord requires of his people. And it also shows us really an MRI of Saul's heart. And so as we look at 1 Samuel 15 tonight, we're going to, it's got, kind of, we want to look at those parallel ideas we want to see what does God require of his people what is the mind of God what is the heart of God as it relates to the very nitty-gritty day-to-day life that we're to live as believers as his people and at the same time because it is a true story and because it is an account of a man's fall we have an example of what it looks like to lack love and devotion for the Lord so, we're going to organize our study tonight of this chapter just into three scenes. We're going to look at those scenes. And as the story unfolds, we're going to see what the Lord desires from his people and also what it looks like to lack devotion. What does the Lord require from his people, but also what does it look like to lack devotion to the Lord? So, the story begins in chapter 15, verse 1, and this is kind of our first scene. And what we see here is a divine challenge, a divine challenge. The writer writes, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The story begins with Samuel coming to Saul with a command from the Lord. The prophet Samuel is God's messenger, God's mouthpiece. And through him, Saul is reminded that it was the Lord who established him as king. He's reminded the beginning, it was the Lord who sent Samuel to anoint him. And he says, that is the reason why you're to listen to what I'm about to say. Saul, you are not king according to your own will. You are not king according to your own determination. You have a delegated authority. And therefore, because of that, you are to listen. Those are the words of Samuel, representative of the words of the Lord to Saul. God himself here is the basis for Saul's obedience. God established you as king, Saul. Now obey him. Therefore, obey him. And God's character is always the basis for man's obedience. Samuel reminds Saul of God's character and God's work and then gives him the command. Now, the command given to Saul was that he was to utterly destroy Amalek for what he did to the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. Now the Amalekites are shown in the scriptures to be a wicked, wicked people. Deuteronomy 25 says that the Amalekites attacked the stragglers. Who do you think was in the back as Israel moved? okay. Out of Egypt, as they followed the Lord, it would have been the, the elderly, the weak, maybe children, certainly the sick. Deuteronomy 25 says that the Amalekites attacked them, attacked those people, attacked the stragglers when the Israelites were faint and weary on their way into Egypt. And as a result, God pronounced judgment on them and gave Israel the responsibility to carry out this judgment the terminology we have in these three verses is similar to what we see in Joshua and the conquest of Canaan the people are commanded to destroy everything the term that we have translated if you have an NAS utterly destroy is a term that refers to the designation by God that something is is accursed it's there's no good in it it's to be destroyed and the severity of what this judgment entails is made very plain for us in verse three Women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Everything is supposed to be wiped out. And this is a frightful pronouncement. It's severe. No living thing was to be spared. It was all to be put under the ban, devoted to destruction and utterly destroyed. And it's interesting, if you look down at verse 4, Saul gets right to action, right? Right? There's not any commentary from the writer about this, okay, but I'm gonna make a few comments. Because passages such as this have led some throughout church history to make all kinds of rash pronouncements about this. They've questioned the scriptures, the integrity of the scriptures. Surely this, a God who would command this, is not the same as the God that we have in the New Testament. right? The, uh, the ancient Marcion heresy where Old Testament references were not considered scripture, not considered on par with the New Testament. Some think that the Israelites had a primitive understanding of God's moral and ethical code, and this was just an example. This wasn't really what God wanted. This is just how Israel understood what they were to do. And in fact, in our day, as you've maybe heard, one famous atheist declared, in light of texts like this, that God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. And if you read this passage through the eyes of unbelief, that's, that's where you're left: man and woman. Child, infant, animals, destroyed. My encouragement as we are going to move on through the narrative, but as, as we see this verse is that you reflect on how, your sense, as your sensibilities are affected by this, are you viewing this with a man-centered worldview, with a man-first worldview? Are you viewing this in light of God's character and how God deals with humanity? This is a, a severe command. On the flip side, if if we look at this and gloss over it as, hey, tough, God's holy, that's what happened. I would challenge you to correct that as well. This is a severe, severe command. But it it highlights God's holiness. It emphasizes God's holiness for us. This is the cost of sin. As we see this in verse 3, we should be reminded of the great, great cost that it cost the Savior to redeem us. This wrath right here that was poured out on these people, that's an illustration of God's anger and hatred of sin and his holiness. And he poured that out on his son because of our sin. So pause and reflect as we move through, there, move through this narrative. and just As you go away from here tonight and you think about this, ask, do you have room in your theology for verse three? Do you have room in your understanding of God for verse three of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel? Do we understand God's holiness? Are we afraid of God's holiness? Do we understand the great cost that Jesus paid to atone for our sins? So Saul is given this severe command. He was to lead Israel as an instrument of divine punishment against the Amalekites. So picking up in verse four, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul gathers his troops for battle. And he warns the Kenites to get out and shows some grace to them. And because of their past dealings with the Israelites... And the geographical details in verse 7 make clear that this was a far-reaching victory. It covered a lot of landscape. This was a big battle. But the narrator provides a summary in verses 8 and 9, and this is the important part of the result of Saul's battle that's going to carry us through the rest of the narrative. And that is that Saul's victory was incomplete. Saul and the people with him were determined to keep some of the things that the Lord said needed to be utterly destroyed they did what they thought was good instead of what God commanded. And we see right here, the measuring stick for their obedience was, was what, they, what seemed good to them. Saul and the people decided, these things, we don't need to destroy these things. These things are good. We're not willing to destroy them utterly. Saul acted in accordance with his own will. He is presented here and shown here. This is a highlight of what's going to be called out even more specifically later. He is a self-willed man. And that does not jive with what the Lord had commanded the people of Israel to do, to be devoted to him, not devoted to self. Saul's self-will stands in opposition to the Lord, and that's what we're gonna see throughout this story. So the people, spare Agag, the best of the sheep, So they utterly destroyed the despised and worthless things. So is that obedience. They kind of did what God said, right? They kind of did it. They went after the Amalekites. He got an army together. He had a far sweeping battle, but it was incomplete. And incomplete obedience is nothing more than disobedience. He didn't heed God's word. That's why the narrator gives us the contrast in verses 8 and 9. They had this far reaching feet, but they spared Agag and they spared some of the good things that they thought. It's, it's, as, as we move through here, it's, Saul is such an illustration of the tendencies that we have in our heart, and I don't want any of us to miss that. Saul tweaked God's commands as, it saw, as he saw fit. That's what he did. He thought, I'm gonna do this, but this seems good to me, so I'll just adjust it a little bit. I'll just adjust God's word just a little bit. Is that really so bad? I, I kill the majority of the Amalekites. These things are good. I'll, I'll come up with an excuse for these things. They're good things. Surely th- this isn't a huge deal. And even though the consequences may not be as severe or the none of us are leading nations for which we'll suffer the consequence for our little tweaks... Really, this is no different at the heart level than when we decide which of our little sins, which of our little items we'll, we'll just leave unaffected by the Lord's commands, unaffected by His will. It's just an area of the heart that Saul said, No, I'm not going to do this. This is acceptable to me. When we ask those questions of ourselves, well, what's acceptable to us? We've now changed the locus of authority from the Lord and his word and his commands to our self-driven, self-motivated wills. And that's what Saul did right here. So this self-willed approach to obedience is how we leave this first scene. And so the scene ends with Saul failing to do what the Lord said to do, okay? He ends, it ends with a failing to obey. Now verse 10 marks a change in the scene, okay? Where it's gonna go, it's like, The the scene shifts away from, okay, here's what Saul did in response to the Lord's commands, now a shift, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Scene two interrupts to provide God's assessment Of what went on. This arguably could be the most important verses in the passage. This is God's assessment of what took place between Saul and the Amalekites. Samuel receives the news of Saul's disobedience directly from the Lord. The first thing that God tells Samuel is that he regrets. He regrets that he made Saul king. And we ask, what does that mean? What is meant by this? How is God, who foreordains and foreknows everything, how does he regret anything? In verse 29, which we'll see later, it makes clear that this is not simply the case of God being surprised at the outcome, okay? We know that. We're studying Romans 8 with Pastor Rick. We know that God's knowledge of the future is not limited, it's not open. So it can't mean that he was surprised by Saul It can't mean that he was shocked that Saul disobeyed his commands. But by indicating the the Lord's regret, we get a sense of the Lord's view, the Lord's heart for what Saul did. The the emphasis in verse 11 is is on God's relationship, his interaction with Saul. It's relational. In a relational sense, God's disposition towards Saul changed because of Saul's disobedience. That's what is meant by the fact that God regretted that he made Saul king. We don't serve an impersonal God. God's not indifferent to this. It's not like, well, this is all in accordance with my foreordained plan and decree, therefore it doesn't matter, and everything is very just black and white, here you go, let's move on. He gives insight to his heart, to the way that he feels about what Saul did, and it was grievous to him. The second part of verse 11 gives God's, assessment or his indictment of Saul's disobedience. Saul's disobedience, Saul's partial obedience, listen to this from the Lord, was nothing less than a turning back from following God. A turning away from following after the Lord. It was not written off as a temporary slip up. It was not a a small stumbling. The Lord reveals Saul's heart in verse 11. Saul turned back from following the Lord. And as a result of hearing that news, Samuel is grieved. Samuel is grieved. It says he was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And we're not told exactly why Samuel was grieved or angry. Obviously it's connected to Saul's sin. It's connected to the fact that the Lord expressed his displeasure with Saul and what had happened. Remember, Samuel anointed Saul in front of the people. Samuel was a ruler of the people at that time, a judge of the people. So this ongoing disobedience of Saul by this point would not have reflected well on him, certainly in the eyes of the Israelites. Also remember that Samuel had been the source of God's word to Saul from, the, from his anointing until now, and no doubt Saul, or Samuel loved Saul. Samuel would have grief over Saul's lack of devotion, and ultimately, Samuel's gonna be concerned about the glory of the Lord, and this bumbling start to their monarchy is distressing him. His reaction to, to this sin, it's, it's instructive for us, just in passing. I mean, when church leaders fall or Christ's name and Christ's church are dragged through the mud, he's mocked by a, by a watching world because of sin from within the church or sin from his people. Or when a brother or sister in Christ turns from the Lord, fails to heed, or rebuke, or counsel, it should grieve us. An, Samuel is an example to us of that. He was grieved. So scene two is short. It's just these two verses, verses 10 and 11. Okay, but they color the entire passage. This is God's assessment of what took place. This is Samuel's grief over what has taken place with Saul. And so now that scene's gonna change to our third scene, and that's really the final scene from here through the rest of the chapter, and that's the confrontation between Samuel as the Lord's representative and Saul. Saul, or Samuel in verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. If we were wondering how Saul was feeling after his Incomplete obedience against the Amalekites, verse 12 makes it pretty clear, right? He set up a monument for himself. Not a humble monument before the Lord, even giving him credit for the victory that did take place over the Amalekites. For himself. And he comes out confident. He asserts his obedience before the Lord's prophet, goes out to meet him. His focus is not on the victory the Lord secured. It's not on any of that. It's on himself. It's on his own accomplishments. And his self-absorption and his self-confidence, it's, it's a contrast to what was just said by God. So in these verses, you have a very stark contrast immediately between God's assessment of Saul and Saul's assessment of himself. Verse 11, God said, Saul has not carried out my commands. What's Saul say in Verse 13. I have carried out my commands. He's in direct opposition to the Lord. There's no humble devotion here. Starting verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? You can imagine this scene, right? Samuel is walking toward Saul, toward the camp. They have the spoils of war. There were to be none. No spoils. No animals, no anything, no anything that seemed good, okay? I would imagine that the army, that the camp was abuzz after their victory. And evidently from Samuel's response, the animals were not being quiet. Saul comes out, asserts, look at what I did. Look at how I've obeyed. And Samuel looks at him and says, really? Then why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear oxen? Saul says in verse 15, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul's confidence is apparently undeterred in light of what Samuel says. Really, Saul, you obeyed? Then why are these animals here? right? Obedience would be obvious. There should be no spoil. Everything should be destroyed. Saul's undeterred. They've brought him. They brought him from the Amalekites. They've spared the best. And so notice this contrast. Saul was told to utterly destroy. Again, you see, it's, it's very black and white. He was told to utterly destroy. What's he say? We didn't. We spared sheep and oxen. And note just the, the little, little word in verse 15. And, we're gonna, and it comes up later again. To sacrifice, as he's talking to Samuel, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. To the Lord your God. That's telling. That's telling where Saul's heart is. Samuel halts Saul's affirmation of his own obedience. He says, let me tell you what the Lord said about all this. That's why I'm here. Let me tell you about what the Lord said. You're saying that you've obeyed. Let me tell you what God says about what you've done. So similar to verse one, how he started, he reminds him again of where he came from what his roots were, and that the Lord had been the one to establish him. In contrast to asserting his own will in carrying out the Lord's orders and then praising himself by setting up a monument. When he started, he was little in his own eyes. And then Samuel restates the command with clarity, reminding Saul of exactly what he was supposed to do, which again is in stark contrast. He tells Saul, you did not obey the voice of Of the Lord. And evidently, Saul, I think at this point, Saul actually thinks that he carried out the Lord's commands. I believe that. Twice he asserts his obedience. You say, well, how could that be? Because he is absolutely blinded by self will and self focus and he's deceived. He's deceived. He doesn't love the Lord, he loves himself. This was his version of what's best. His version of what the Lord wanted, and so I think he he does think he believed. He's justifying himself before Samuel and the word of the Lord, rationalizing his sin. Think about that for a minute. Listen to Saul rationalize his disobedience. We took the choice things for sacrifice. We disobeyed in order to honor the Lord. We disobeyed in order to honor the Lord. This is a drastic example for us of, the, of how irrational sin is, right? You can't rationalize something that is utterly irrational. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us do stupid things. It makes us think stupid thoughts. Saul says, I disobeyed in order to sacrifice. Verse 21, we took the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice. There were no choice things, God said it's all cursed. It's all under the ban. There is no choice things. There's nothing that's worthy of a sacrifice. Saul was gonna bring the things. He did bring the things that were under a ban and think that that was gonna be be good. Saul's responses unfold before Samuel like a train wreck. His disobedience has brought up every confrontation from Samuel with the word of God all going back to the very beginning, the first command he was given, every one of those things, we just see Saul respond. He fails to repent. He fails to acknowledge his sin. He fails to acknowledge his disobedience. And all of these things reveal a heart that's wayward. They all reveal a heart that's not devoted to the Lord, that's uninterested in what the Lord is interested in. He has turned back from following the Lord. And he's an example to us of the tendencies in our own heart to rationalize sin, to be self-willed, self-deceived, ignoring rebukes from those who come in love with the Lord's word to correct our lives, to correct our behavior, to help us see more clearly what we can't see for ourselves. Devotion to God keeps us from looking like Saul, Love for God stifles the desire in our heart to to rationalize disobedience, to rationalize our behavior in light of what God says. And Samuel responds to Saul's self-justifying claims with a pointed correction in verse 22. And this correction really dials into the heart of God. If If I say that verses 10 and 11 were maybe the most important verses in terms of the story and giving the Lord's assessment of what took place, these might be the most important verses in revealing the Lord's heart and seeing principles that should govern our lives as we live in light of our salvation. Look at verse 22. So verse 21, after Saul tells him, hey, again, we've brought these things to sacrifice, this is what Samuel says. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul has set obedience and sacrifice at odds with his responses, right? We saw that. I disobeyed because I bought these things to, to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And so Samuel is gonna correct him and set those things in order, okay? And he's told that God does not prioritize external religious works over the obedience of a devoted heart. That's the mind of God, God does not prioritize external works over the obedience of a devoted heart. The issue in these verses, in this correction, I want to make sure that we know, it's not works versus love. It's not holy sacrifices versus obedience, okay? It's works without love. It's work, it's external conformity to to a semblance of what God desires without any love for him, without any devotion for him. For the obedient Israelite, right, sacrifice and obedience go hand in hand, okay? The obedient Israelite would have been making sacrifices and burnt offerings, heeding the voice of the Lord and offering the fat of rams, right? In general, that was their life. They were commanded to make sacrifices. Sacrifice was part of their obedience. The issue here. Is sacrifice without any obedience accompanying it? Saul was not obedient; he was disobedient. He didn't love the Lord. The way that he carried out the Lord's commands make that clear. And so, to make sacrifice, to attempt some sort of external conformity to appease God, was worthless. And that's what is being indicated by Samuel. Saul was attempting to serve the Lord externally in some fashion, with no inclination to obey him internally. What Samuel means by sacrifice in verse 22 is what Saul meant by it. Just an external conformity to appease God, right? This is gonna pacify God. Yeah, yeah, I didn't obey. We took some choice things, but the Lord likes sacrifices. So I'll offer some sacrifice. Everything will be okay. And Samuel corrects him by revealing God's heart, God's desires. The Lord delights in obedience as better than sacrifice from a heart that doesn't love him. Sacrifice from a heart that doesn't love God, external obedience, external conformity of some semblance from a heart that has no love for him, no devotion, does not please him. And so we're gonna ask, how does this instruction inform our view of, of God? How does it inform the way we relate to the Lord? As believers, these verses are a paradigm for our faith. They reveal what God desires. And it's important that we note, just as Samuel was correcting Saul, that God is not appeased by our working if it comes apart, if it comes separated from believing and loving. Obedience comes with faith. It comes as the overflow of devotion to the Lord, not separate there can be a temptation to separate our obedience from faith, to enter sort of a rut of doing religious activities that we think is going to, I don't know, keep us on the up and up with the Lord when, when we ignore that, that in our heart that we're not seeking the Lord in obedience. There's a tendency to love self more than the Lord. We, we try to appease that, maybe, a, maybe help our guilt by just doing more. But actions, religious actions, good things, serving here at Mission Road Bible Church, if you don't love the Lord, it, it doesn't please him. God doesn't desire that. God does not desire sacrifice set over and against the obedience of a devoted heart. Verse 23 equates the failure to heed the Lord's word with sins that were, in this time, heinous forms of rejection. Heinous forms of rejection. He says rebellion, so disobedience, what Saul did. He says that that is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. These are are references to the the really pagan pagan religious practices. Those practices of the Canaanites, of the pagans that surrounded the Israelites. God says ignoring my word is the same thing as all of those. Saul was gonna bring his so-called sacrifice before the Lord and his disobedience, and Samuel says, look, according to the Lord, your rebellion is no different than the pagans that are caught up in divination, idolatry, false gods, false worship. The words at the end of 23 are the, the verdict on, on Saul from God's perspective. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's tumultuous reign would continue for nearly 40 more years. But with this pronouncement, it's shut down. As far as the longevity goes, he's shown here not to be a man after God's own heart, not to be God's choice. Verse 24, after that serious pronouncement, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, being Saul, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord Now, the news of this rejection, of of his rejection by the Lord, finally gets his attention in verse 24, right? And he seems, in some way, to recognize his sin, to make a confession. He admits his sin. He admits a failure to obey the command of the Lord. And he pleads with Samuel return with me, go back with me. But I think the clues that are here in this text show us that his response doesn't constitute genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. First, in verse 24, look, he's making an excuse. I didn't obey because I feared the people. I listened to their voice instead of the voice of God. Now, if you're the king, this is not a very good excuse, okay? Saul is God's designated authority over his people. He's to lead the people. He's not to acquiesce at their demands. He's to obey the Lord. That was clear. That's his job. I think evidence from 1 Samuel 14 helps us see, too, that Saul didn't have any problem throwing his authority around. He made foolish demands on his people in First Samuel 14. Rash demands and commands. That doesn't seem like a man who was afraid of the people. So I, I, I don't buy it. But even if we gave him the benefit of the doubt, even if we said that he was genuinely fearful, then the consequence is still sin, Right? He's saying, I fear man more than I fear God. God's command was clear. I got this directly from God's prophet, and yet I ignored that to please my troops. So even if he genuinely feared, it was still sin. It was still sin to fear the people. Verse 25, Saul, I wanna make just a comment about Saul's desire to worship, because when we read that, it makes it sound like, I mean, he's right where he needs to be. I've confessed, I sinned, go back with me, let me worship. The way that the terminology is here doesn't necessarily say anything about his heart, one way or the other. But the terminology refers to the outward posture of worship, this outward bowing down. And as we're going to see here in the next few verses, Saul was very concerned with what he looked like in front of the people. He was very concerned that he looked like a worshiper before the army and that Samuel be with him. So certainly he wanted to take a posture of worship. I don't necessarily think that that means it's genuine repentance, as we'll see in Saul's own words. So Samuel rejects Saul's request initially. He says, I'm not gonna return with you. And again, reiterates, you have rejected the word of the Lord. Keep that in mind Why? we ask. We're reminded of it throughout this, this passage. Why was Saul rejected as king? Because he rejected the word of the Lord. Because he disobeyed. Sometimes it's easy to think, you know, big picture, David was the man, messianic kingdom, covenant promises. Don't ignore what this says. Saul, you were rejected as king because you disobeyed. Because you did not devote yourself to the Lord. As he reaches out to grab Samuel's robe, clinging, obviously desperate at this point, he's been told he's not gonna have the kingdom, the robe tears. Samuel looks at it, it's on the fly illustration, sees the torn robe, just as this robe is torn, Saul, the kingdom's been torn for you and given to a neighbor who is better than you. And that's pointing forward to what's gonna be shown in in chapter 16, We're told back in 1 Samuel 13 about that person who was better, and it would be someone who had a heart after the Lord, somebody who was devoted to the Lord. And so when we read verse 28, it's not better, taller, smarter, faster, whatever, craftier, better army general. It's better because this other person loves the Lord. That's why. The next person is better because he has a heart devoted to the Lord. So the finality of Saul's rejection is confirmed in verse 29. And it's interesting in this text, right, because we have the sticky issue of, it says God regrets, and then right here we see God never changes his mind. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Why? Because he's not a man. He doesn't make decisions like a man. I love that that's the proof of God's character in this verse. God isn't like us. God isn't like man. He's not fickle. He's made his decision, Saul. He gave his command. You disobeyed, and he's rejected you from being king. Verse 30, I think, gives a little bit of insight into Saul's feigned repentance, and that's his desire for self-preservation. Please honor me now. That's interesting, right? He's just been confronted. Please honor me, okay? Please honor me now, Samuel, by going back before the elders of my people. Look, the king going back without the prophet who the nation knew was not gonna go well, okay? And he needed Samuel to return with him for credibility, for affirmation that what had just happened with the Amalekites was okay. His status was dependent on Samuel. And if Samuel doesn't go with him, something's gonna be, be up, they're gonna know. And so this self-preservation, I think, is a warning to us here. It, 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 it prevents repentance. It stands in the way of genuine repentance, an attitude of self-preservation that's more concerned with appearing godly than actually being godly will stand in the way of your repentance. A heart that's devoted to the Lord is broken over sin, recognizes the offense, and Samuel has let him have many chances to recognize his offense and the serious nature of it and to be laid low. Verse 32, Samuel said after they go back, he goes back with Saul, he says, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death for Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel returns with Saul and as he comes forward, Samuel stands as a contrast with Saul, a holy contrast. He carries out the severe punishment that the Lord had originally prescribed. It's, this is not some form of, you know, primitive barbaric that's just what happens no samuel is concerned with the lord's glory he does what saul was supposed to do and he does it in a drastic way before all the people he confirms and completes the execution of god's holy wrath on the amalekites that saul was supposed to do that and what a contrast here saul disobeys the explicit command of the lord and samuel goes to and hacks him to pieces for the Lord's honor. Saul made himself a monument. And Samuel cleans up what Saul didn't finish. And then the narrative closes with a very sober tone. Saul and Samuel depart. They depart from one another. They go their separate ways. The, the idea there is that there's a, there's a break. There's, there's a clear break here. This is no longer the Lord's choice for king. Their relationship as co-laborers, leading the Israelites, It's over. And the Lord, his pronouncement once again is that he was grieved. He was grieved by Saul. He repented. He regretted that he had made Saul king. And again, it's the Lord's sorrow over Saul's disobedience, over the fact that he did not love the Lord. I know that you are good Bible students And that as we consider the kings, we consider the monarchy, David is probably weighing heavy in your mind. Anytime you look at this, you look at Saul, the questions, God's sovereign choice and the roles of Saul and David come up. I just wanna encourage you as you reflect on this text that, yeah, it's true that Saul was chosen by God to be the first king. And it's true that God knew him and knew his heart, knew that he would turn from him, and ultimately knew that the messianic line would come through David. But if we take all of that, and we lay that over this, and we ignore what it says very clearly about the reason Saul was rejected, that we miss the warning that's available to us. We miss the thrust of God's heart, which is, I desire devotion. I desire obedience. Saul is not king because he disobeyed. Saul was culpable before the Lord, And that is the reason the scripture provides over and over again for Saul's rejection. Okay, 1 Samuel 13 says, the Lord's appointed another ruler because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We just read in verse 11 of 15 that the Lord regretted that he made Saul king because he didn't carry out his commands. Over and over again, Saul's lack of devotion, his failure to obey the Lord as a response of love is the reason why he was rejected. First Chronicles 10, 13 and 14 says, Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and he did not inquire of the Lord. Ultimately, Saul is shown in this chapter to be faithless. He's shown to be faithless His idea of obedience was an external conformity to some commands. He was going to do what he wanted. He was going to do what he desired in his heart. And he wasn't going to follow after the Lord in devotion. So the stage is set for the next king, the one who would be better than Saul, the one who would be better because he was devoted. But ultimately, as we know, no earthly king is ever shown to be fit for the job And that one day the Lord, the Messiah, revealed to be Jesus Christ, is going to rule the nations on earth as God's perfect king. There will be a king on this earth that rules with perfect devotion to the Lord, who rules righteously and justly in full obedience, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. We have forward, we look forward to that. We look forward to that day. But while we wait, as we close, what What does the Lord require of us? What does the Lord require of us? And we have been redeemed in Christ so that our relationship with God can be restored, so that we actually can have hearts that are devoted, hearts that obey out of love for the Lord. So I just wanna leave you with two two references. We'll let the scriptures be read for our closing remarks. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, very familiar verses, verses nine, 10, and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So there's command. But listen to verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought you. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not simply command. It's not simply keeping it pure because I keep it according to your word. It's, there's a seeking of the Lord. There's a devotion here. This obedience, the, the longing to keep the way pure is in the context also of seeking the Lord, obedience that flows out of that seeking the Lord in relationship. And forward in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, that great chapter on faith. The writer says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Lord desires obedience that flows out of faith, belief in who he is, faith in his promises, faith in his character. Devotion, love, without faith. No matter what type of external conformity you tack on, even religious things, duty, works that at some part in the scriptures are shown to please him in some way. All of those things without faith, it says, there's no way, can't please the Lord, can't please God. So I hope that we go from here, this text confronts the tendencies in our own heart that we see in Saul, to be wayward to harbor sin and more importantly I hope that we leave here just reminded of the Lord's desire for his people what does the Lord require of us to love him to love him to be devoted to him to seek him and obey as a result of that Do you bow with me Father thank you for your word, thank you for your instruction. I ask that by your spirit and your wisdom you would take the truth of this text, the truth that you've preserved for us from the story of Saul and his dealings with your servant Samuel and from your pronouncements in this chapter that those things would change our hearts, would push us toward devotion. Thank you for enabling us to be devoted to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide our hearts, guide our steps, and give us a desire and a passion to obey you in love. Amen.